Jesus has always elicited different responses from people. Some heard his words and saw his works while he was on earth, yet they still rejected him. For others, Jesus overcame their fears and gave them a glimpse of his true identity. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more free gospel-centered resources at our website, Radical.net. In this message from Matthew chapters 13 and 14, David Platt points us to two pictures of belief and two pictures of unbelief when it comes to responding to Jesus. We too must decide how we will respond to him. Will we reject this king or will we fall down and worship him? Here's David with the sermon titled, Worship the King from Matthew chapters 13 and 14. If you have his word, and I hope you do, then I invite you to find Matthew chapter 14. Actually open to the very end of Matthew chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 53, where we left off last week. And I simply want to connect the dots between what we were just doing in singing in worship with this text that we're going to look at today. One main truth that just leaps off the pages of Matthew 14 today, it's not in your notes, but it is the overarching truth that I want to I wanna show us. I want to I connect the dots, show us how our worship of Christ is directly related to our belief in Christ. It seems pretty basic, but follow with me here. Our worship of Christ is a reflection of our belief in Christ. What we believe about Jesus determines everything about how we worship Jesus. Maybe, maybe another way to say it, what we think about Jesus determines how we sing to Jesus. So belief and worship go together. Belief fuels worship. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, it is God who gives us the spirit of worship and it is what we know of God that produces this spirit of worship. We might say that worship is simply what we think about God going into top gear. So that's what we're doing. We're singing Psalm 62. We think about God, our Redeemer, our Savior, Defender, taking it into top gear and worship. He said, instead of merely thinking about him, we tell him in prayer and praise and song how great and glorious we believe him to be. What we believe about Jesus determines everything about how we worship Jesus. And so that's what I want want to call you to this morning. My prayer is that the word, by the spirit of God, that the word would create deeper faith in you. Deeper belief in you. And in the process, the result would be more passionate worship. I'm not even just talking about, yes, there's emotion, but I'm not talking about emotion in some kind of shallow way. I'm talking about emotion in the affection in the deepest of way. So my prayer is that through Matthew 14, that the word would instill deeper faith in you over the next few moments in a way that will resound from you in worship. And I want to speak, particularly in the, in the second half of what we're going to look at, particularly to those who are walking through difficult times where faith is hard to come by. So 
What we're going to do, jump right in, end of Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. Here's the deal. We saw in Matthew chapter 13 last week, if you were here, we saw eight parables that Jesus told. Remember the first parable, if you were here, was the parable of the sower and seed. Sower the son of man, seed the message of salvation. And you have four types of human hearts, four types of soil. We talked about, number one, the hard heart that rejects the message of salvation. We talked about, number two, the superficial heart that initially receives the message of salvation, but there's no root to it, so that when pressure, persecution comes, it's gone. We talked about the divided heart, where the message of salvation, the gospel, is choked out by the ways and the wealth of this world. And then we talked about the fruitful heart, fourth kind of heart, fruitful heart, the heart that hears understands, receives the message of salvation and responds in faith and obedience. So that's what we saw in Matthew chapter 13. So when we get to verse 53, Matthew kind of makes a transition from that. He says, when Jesus finished these parables, he went away from there. And what we're going to see the end of this chapter and then into chapter 14 is basically an illustration of those four different types of soil. So we're going to see hard hearts, the very beginning here with people in Nazareth and then Herod the Tetrarch. We're going to see superficial hearts. We're going to see crowds that, that, are, that love to receive Jesus as long as he gives them food. But the next minute, we'll completely turn away from Jesus. We're, going to, we're not going to see specifically the divided heart, but just remember that lurking in the midst of the disciples is Judas, who is seeing everything that Jesus is doing, hearing everything that Jesus is saying, and yet is going to turn away the, the ways and the wealth of this world are going to choke out the gospel in his heart. And then we're going to see the fruitful heart. We're going to see the disciples begin to grow to new heights in their faith by the end of Matthew chapter 14. So we'll see all four of those. So the way I've divided it up is just generally into those who believe and those who don't believe. So two pictures of unbelief that I want to show you here at the beginning leading us to two pictures of belief. And just so you know, there's a transition that's happening here, even geographically, chronologically at this point in Matthew. So from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 up to this point, we've seen Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And, and most scholars think that that lasted about two years. So we've seen about things that have happened over about a two-year time span. Well, what's going to happen now is he's going to begin to move from Galilee and work his way down to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And about a year from now, chronologically, he's going to be nailed to a cross. And so we're about two years into his ministry. We've got about a year left. And as we transition, we're going to see Jesus focus, begin to focus even more on those, those disciples who are right around him. Even when he's with crowds, he's focusing on his disciples. And we'll see that illustrated in, in just a second. So, okay, two pictures of unbelief. Let's read them both at the same time, and then we'll think about each of them. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished, and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Okay, two pictures of unbelief. First, Jesus' hometown. Jesus begins to move toward Nazareth. He teaches there, and the people were amazed. The text says they were astonished at what he said. Where did this man get his wisdom and all these mighty works? But just like the crowds we've seen at Capernaum, they refused to believe in him. They questioned where his authority was coming from, and they doubted that it came from God. And as a result, they were offended by him, literally repelled by him. So here's the deal. They heard his words. They listened to Jesus teach. They were amazed by his teaching. They saw his works. Where did these men get these mighty works, they asked. So they heard his words and they saw his works, yet they denied him worship. They were repelled by him and they chose not to give him honor. Many are the people, mark it down, many are the people who will hear about Jesus and see evidence of Jesus at work and yet refuse to give him the worship that he is due. See the relationship between belief and worship. They did not worship because they did not believe. So that's the first picture. Second picture of unbelief is Herod the Tetrarch. And this guy's story is like a twisted soap opera. And I say that not because I have experience with soap operas or watched soap operas or would know what a soap opera even looks like. But I say that because I've got a feeling that most soap operas are probably pretty twisted and this one just takes the cake above and beyond any that, that we might have today. So follow this family tree with me. If you think you have a crooked family tree, prepare yourself to be encouraged this morning by comparison. Okay, so here's the deal. You got to follow the details with me here. You got Herod Antipas. Here he's called Herod the Tetrarch. And Tetrarch basically means he was the, like a prince or a governor over a certain region. So he's not ultimately king at this point. Even when verse 9 says, the king said this, The king said, even though the king was sorry, that basically is just referring to his rule and his reign over this particular region. So you got Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, who's ruler here, and he was married to the daughter of an Arabian king. This whole marriage had been set up in a political military alliance, and so you've got Herod Antipas and his Arabian wife, okay? Leave leave this story here for a second. Let's come over to Herod Antipas's half-brother, Herod Philip. Herod Philip is Herod Antipas' half-brother, and his wife is named Herodias. So over here you got, there's a lot of Herods in the picture, so keep them, keep them separate. Herod Antipas, Arabian wife, Herod Philip, and Herodias, Herod Philip's wife. 
And Herodias just happens to be Herod Antipas's niece. So basically, Herodias is Herod Antipas's sister-in-law and niece. Okay? So you got the picture. Well, one day, Herod Antipas goes to visit Herod Philip and his wife. And while he's there, he, Herod Antipas, and Herodias decides to sneak away. And they decide to get married. So you have Herod Antipas who divorces his Arabian wife and marries his sister-in-law slash niece, stealing her from his half-brother, Herod Philip. As if that is not enough. Antipas and Herodias have a daughter. She's mentioned here in the story doing this dance. Her name is Salome. And one day, Salome marries her half-uncle, Philip the Tetrarch. We find out about him in Luke chapter 3, verse 1. So Antipas and Herodias, their daughter, marries her half-uncle, Philip the Tetrarch. And as a result, she becomes the sister-in-law and aunt of her own mother. (laughs) Her mom is her sister-in-law and aunt at the same time. So you got that? Now, you ask me why that is important. It's not important at all. But I just want you to see how messed up this guy is. So here's the deal. Herod hears about all that Jesus is doing in his region. And he gets scared. And he starts to think, this is John the Baptist. Come back to life. And that prompts Matthew to pause here in Matthew chapter 14 and to reflect back on how John the Baptist died in the first place. So chronologically, John's death doesn't happen here in Matthew chapter 14. Instead, this is a flashback to John the Baptist's beheading. To the day when Salome, Herod Antipas' daughter, did a seductive dance before what was likely her drunk father and her friends, and he offered her whatever she wanted in in return. And Herodias, Salome's mother, said, ask him for John the Baptist's head on a platter. Because John, obviously at great risk to his own life, had stood up in opposition to what Herod was doing in this whole marriage to Herodias. Now, Herod had John in prison because of the respect that people had for him. And we actually find out in other points that Herod had respect for John the Baptist. But Herodias had none. And she wanted him gone. She was a, he was a threat to her marriage. You can't help but to think, you know, we've talked about how there's all kinds of parallels between the prophet Elijah and the prophet John the Baptist. John the Baptist even referred to as Elijah here in the book of Matthew. We've seen that. All kinds of parallels. You can't help but to think back to Elijah standing up, confronting sin with King Ahab and his wife, wicked Queen Jezebel. So there's a reflection here. all over, And, and both with Elijah and John the Baptist, we're seeing examples of, of men, prophets, who stood at great risk, confronted sin in the context and culture in which they lived, and paid it a heavy price for it. And I think that's an important side note. It's worth mentioning. The reality is, as long as you, or I, or we, speak truth and call out sin for what it is in this world, It will be costly. So do not be surprised when you or I or we together speak truth or call out sin for what it is in this country 
or in this culture and find that it is costly in the end. Don't be surprised. We have brothers and sisters around the world who are doing that daily at the risk of their lives and experiencing similar fates to what John the Baptist experienced here. But the testimony of John the Baptist shows us that it is worth it. One writer said, it cost John his head, but it is better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. So this was a flashback to John the Baptist beheading. It's also, though, a foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion. So part of what Matthew's doing here is he's linking John the Baptist and Jesus together, particularly under Herod. Because Herod had charge over the region where John the Baptist was preaching, and his leadership, or lack of leadership, led to John's beheading. You fast forward to Jesus' trial, what you'll find in Luke chapter 23 is that Pilate sends Jesus to the same Herod. And there, Herod the Tetrarch plays a very similar passive role that then sets the stage for Jesus' death. So Herod's unbelief led to both the beheading of John the Baptist and eventually the crucifixion of Christ. Two pictures of unbelief that now set the stage for a dramatic contrast in the rest of Matthew chapter 14. Two pictures of belief. And the shift here is right to the disciples and Jesus' relationship with them. So let's read two stories of faith. First, faith in the face of need. Verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the, to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Now you may not know that this is the only miracle of Jesus that is recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's interesting, when you look at the different accounts in those four different Gospels, you'll see Gospel writers telling the same story from different angles to emphasize different things. I'll mention John a couple of times because there's a clear emphasis in John that it's, it's here in Matthew chapter 14, but it's not as prominent. Part of the angle that Matthew is giving us here in Matthew chapter 14 is the effect of this miracle specifically on the disciples and their faith. And so I want you to see, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of these disciples seeing this happen, and I want you to see how their belief is going to new depths or new heights, however you want to put it, as a result of watching this take place. First, see how they are learning to reflect his compassion. So Jesus withdrew into a boat for some rest. You can almost picture him just weary and tired from all the crowds, all the opposition, all the healing. He's got a few minutes on the boat, but then once they get to the other side, the crowds have caught up with him. And you have all these crowds again coming to him. Heal us, heal us. 5,000 plus people, large crowds. 
coming to see him. Now what you don't see is you're just looking at the crowds and saying, would you please go home? I'm tired. But certainly he had a right to say. Instead, what we see here is exactly what we saw in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. See the compassion of Christ, even for superficial crowds who one day are going to receive bread from him and the next day are going to be completely rejecting him, eventually crucifying him. And yet he had compassion for them. We see the same thing. Go ahead and jump to the end of the chapter. Go ahead and see this, verse 34, 35, and 36. After the next story we're about to read, when they crossed over to sea, they came to land at, to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So see, amid the crowds, the disciples learning as their faith in Jesus grows to reflect his compassion. Now that comes especially to bear on the fact that these crowds need food. And so they come to him and say, let's tell them to go home if if anything, now that it's turning into night, sun is setting, people hungry, this is the perfect out. Just tell them they need to go home and get some food. Instead, Jesus, out of compassion, says, you feed them, which leads to the second area where they are learning. One, reflect his compassion. Now, second, they're learning to rely on his resources. So you've got 5,000 plus people who are in need of food. And they come to Jesus saying, we don't have enough food to feed them. Now, I want you to think about the irony of that statement, particularly in light of what we're about to read. 5,000 plus feed, f- people in need of food, they come to Jesus and say, we don't have enough to feed them. That is like standing at Niagara Falls and saying, can anybody find some water to drink? I have no idea the majesty and the magnitude of the one who's standing before them. So he says to them, they need not go away. Verse 16, you give them something to eat. In the language there, the emphasis is on that you. You give them something. And they said to him, we have only five loaves and two fish. And that was the point. Jesus was calling these disciples to do something that they did not have the resources to do. He was calling them to serve in a way that they could never do on their own, to provide in a way that they could never do on their own. This is a huge lesson in discipleship, isn't it? On so many different levels, Jesus is showing them their insufficiency and his sufficiency. I put two of those levels in your notes. First, his sufficiency in the fact that Jesus meets needs in us without question. Part of the point of this story is to show us Jesus' sufficiency to meet the deepest needs in our lives. That's particularly clear in John's telling of the story. In John chapter 6, where Jesus uses this whole miracle, there's an extensive teaching section right after he feeds the 5,000, where he talks to them about how he doesn't just give bread. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is not saying, okay, I'm, I'm just primarily the one who gives what it satisfies, what, what satisfies you. Jesus is saying, I am personally the one who does satisfy you. So it's not just about gifts that Jesus can bring, which is what many of the crowds in John chapter 6 were looking for. 
what they're looking for here in Matthew chapter 14. Part of the point is Jesus saying, I am the one who is sufficient to satisfy the needs of your soul. And the imagery here is grounded deeply in the Old Testament. We're seeing here a picture of how Jesus is the new Moses. Takes us back to Exodus chapter 15. God's provision of bread from heaven through Moses for his people. Jesus picks up on that in John chapter 6, verse 32. And he says, It was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, this is a deeper picture than just you having your stomach filled for the day. I am the true bread of God that comes down from heaven to give my life for you. He's the new Moses. He's the greater prophet. You go back to 1 Kings chapter 17 and you see Elijah taking a widow's jar of flour and jug of oil and miraculously it sustains all throughout that drought. You go to 2 Kings chapter 4 and you see how the prophet Elisha fed a hundred men with 20 loaves of bread and some left over. So those are... In a sense, paltry compared to what's going on now, this prophetic miracle going to new heights. He's the greater prophet and he's the messianic host. Most biblical scholars believe that what's happening here with Jesus feeding these crowds was a foretaste of exactly what he talked about in Matthew chapter 8 when he talked about a banquet and a feast where one day he will gather together all who have trusted in him for a banquet and a feast to celebrate. You can, you can just picture it. Imagine a green grassy hillside with 5,000 plus people, 5,000 men plus women and children spread out all across the hillside sitting down for a meal that centers around Christ. Isn't that just a just a little picture of what's going to happen one day when a throng of people from every nation and tribe and tongue and language gather around the throne and, and have a feast together that all centers on Christ. He's the messianic host. And it's all possible because Jesus meets needs in us. So to all in this room, to everyone within the sound of my voice, whose soul hungers for satisfaction, hear this loud and clear. Jesus is the only one who is able to satisfy your soul. No one else. Nothing else. Even the best person you can imagine or the best thing you can fathom is able to do what Christ alone is able to do in your soul. This is, so see the picture. Jesus doesn't just come to save us from our sins as if that's not enough. That's enough. And that's grounding. That's foundation for it. But he doesn't just save us from our sins. He comes to satisfy our souls. Because when, our, when we're saved from our sins, we're reconciled to God and we're, we're, we're made to enjoy God and delight in God and feast on God. That's why he uses language like he does in John 6, 35. And the bread of life, he who comes to me, you'll never be hungry. You believe in me, you'll never be thirsty. Your soul will find satisfaction in Christ alone. So stop looking to the things and the people of this world to satisfy you when only Christ can do that. Come to him, he will. Believe in him, and he will. You'll find worship very satisfying based on belief in Christ, because he meets needs in us. But that's not the whole point of the story. Jesus also meets needs through us. So think about this. If the point of the story, story was just to show us Jesus' sufficiency, he could have called down bread from heaven and just plopped in people's laps. That would have been really cool. 
Everybody would have seen even a greater picture parallel to Exodus chapter 15 and bread coming down from heaven. Instead, look at what Jesus does. He takes the five loaves and two fish. He prays. He asks for the Father's blessing. And then Jesus does not hand out one piece of bread. He doesn't serve one of these 5,000 plus people. Instead, he gives it to his disciples. And his disciples scatter out and serve all of these people. Now, we don't know how it happens. I mean, you can just imagine. Did it happen suddenly? Did it happen slowly? Like, out of five loaves, then become ten, become twenty, become thirty, forty, fifty, hundreds of loaves for all of these people. So you can just, uh, just let your imagination kind of wander there and just see the picture. And it's all happening in the hands of the disciples. Jesus meeting needs in these people through his people. Jesus alone sufficient to meet needs in us, but don't miss it. He is also gracious to meet, to, to use us in meeting needs in others. So see the lesson in discipleship here in faith. Are you surrounded by need? Can you think of people that you work with, you live among, around, that are in need in different ways in their life? Are we as a church surrounded by need in this city? In a world of urgent spiritual and physical need all around us? Do not, whether personally for us as a church, do not sit there and say, well, what can I really do? You are standing in front of Niagara Falls and there are people who are thirsty. There's a lot you can do. Precisely because it's not dependent on your resources, but it's dependent on His resources. So you got people around you who are in need. You know the only one who is sufficient to satisfy those needs, the deepest needs of people's souls. So go to him. Pray on their behalf and then ask God to use you to be a part of meeting this need. So I think about what we, what we've, oh, one thing, we, as we've talked about foster care and adoption stuff around here, that has just grown and awareness of the need has grown to the point where now meeting with some different Churches about saying, okay, we've been doing this in our faith family, but, but there's a bigger picture here. And the numbers are staggering. Even in Metro Birmingham alone, the number of children in foster care system that are not cared for. There's just so much need. State does not have the resources to do it. And then you go beyond Metro Birmingham into the state and go beyond the state nationally and keep going. I mean, it's just massive need. And the kind of need that can cause you, if not careful, to sit back and say, All right, I don't even know where to begin. Like, we can't do this. Instead, so there's beautiful times over the last couple of weeks in meetings saying, well, let's press in because we got Niagara Falls in front of us. We have the father to the fatherless who has promised to defend the orphan and provide for those who, whose mother and father have forsaken them. And so let's press in. Let's ask him to provide. We've got more resources than the state can even begin to touch. We have 
the divine resources of heaven at the disposal of the Christian to be a part of meeting needs around us. So let us not sit back timidly and say, what can we really do? Let's step up, not dependent on, not based on what we have to bring to the table, but based on the fact that we have nothing to bring to the table apart from him, and he is sufficient to meet needs, not only in us, but through us. And in the process, begin to discover his blessings. So reflect his compassion. They're learning to rely on his resources and to receive his blessing. So can you imagine even just the blessing of being a part of this whole miracle? And you go to Jesus and you know, you know, you saw five loaves. And you keep coming back for more. And there's more and there's more and there's more. And and you're taking it to people and they're saying, where is this coming from? You're like, I don't know. This is awesome. I'll get some more. And you keep doing it. You keep doing it. I mean, just imagine the elation involved in that. And then, and then imagine taking more to people and then saying, we are full. Like enough. You have given us too much. And they pick up leftovers. And can it be a coincidence that they pick up 12 baskets in the hands of 12 disciples? as a clear and beautiful picture that as we give our lives the channeled blessing and meeting the needs of others, Jesus will always show himself sufficient to meet the needs in our lives. What a beautiful picture of what it means to follow Jesus, be used by Jesus. It's a joy here. So let your faith deepen. First, in in his ability to satisfy your soul. And let your faith deepen in his ability to use you to bring satisfaction in other souls. Press into him in faith amidst needs around you. you. You got needs that are represented around you. Every single one of us does. Every single Christian in this room, you got needs that God has put you in the middle of in people's lives and situations. So go to him, press in in faith and say, Lord, We need you to show your grace and your mercy in this and use me to do it and see what he does. Reflect his compassion, rely on his resources and receive the blessing that comes with that. So with that, it gets even more personal now in verse 22. What happens, and John 6 makes this clear, after Jesus feeds everybody, all the crowds wanted to make him king. Like, well, this guy provides free food. Let's make him king. And so... So they start clamoring for to set up Jesus as king. But Jesus knows, obviously, that is not the Father's will. This is not what he's come to do. Just satisfy stomachs for a day or a week or longer. He's come to do something deeper here. And so now he and his disciples need to get away from the crowds. And so verse 22 says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. What I want to show you in this story may be familiar to you. I want to show you how this story is an illustration of various truths that we see all over Scripture, but particularly in the New Testament. When it comes to circumstances as disciples of Jesus that we find ourselves in. And this is where I especially want to speak to brothers and sisters who are walking through difficult times right now. We're walking through storms, so to speak, wind, ways of this world buffeting you, knocking you around. And specifically, the, the picture here is, is a situation that Jesus sent his disciples into. So sometimes you and I, we wander into storms in our life, not because Jesus sent us there, but because we're going the exact opposite of where Jesus sent us. And we, we find ourselves buffeted in this world because of sin, because of disobedience to Christ. And the word there is always, the word there is always, repent, turn from your sin, see the consequences of sin, hate it all the more, and run from it all the faster through the power of Christ. But this is a picture where Jesus tells the disciples, you get into the boat. And I, and I know that there are people all around this room that find yourself right now just buffeted in some different ways by the wind and waves of this world. And I want you to see truths in the New Testament illustrated and just let them soak into your heart. I want to speak specifically to you with five, five truths that I think this story illustrates. One, I want to remind you this morning that Jesus is sovereign over you. He's sovereign over you. So Jesus sends these guys into the boat, probably around seven, eight, nine o'clock at night. Sun is set now. They get in the boat to go to the other side. Well, he doesn't come out to them on the sea until the fourth watch of the night, which is at least 3 a.m., maybe as far as 6 a.m. So what that means is for six to nine hours, the disciples are alone on the sea, and during that time, this windstorm is battering them back and forth. And Jesus is still over here on the mountain. But we know, we know, based on Matthew chapter 8, Jesus commands the wind and the waves to do what they do. And so even with these disciples in the middle of the sea, in the middle of this windstorm rocking these waves, the reality is, don't miss it, Jesus holds both the disciples and the storm in his hands. That's key. Nothing's out of control here. It seems out of control to these disciples, but it's not out of control. Jesus has sovereign authority over everything that is happening here. And that's, that's a rock-solid foundation to stand on. Whenever things are falling apart around us, wind and waves... This world beating us back and forth. Know this. Jesus is not unaware of what's happening. He was absolutely aware of what is happening. Second Corinthians chapter 12, he is familiar with our struggles. Hebrews chapter 4, he's familiar with our sufferings. He's not only aware, but he is working in the middle of this. That's the whole foundation. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 doesn't work unless God is sovereign over all things. 
He, the only way that we can know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and have been called according to purpose is the fact that God is in control of all things. If there were things outside of his control, he couldn't guarantee that. The only way he can guarantee that is knowing. It's for you to know that at this moment, Jesus holds you in your hand, in his hands, and your trials in his hands. He's sovereign over that. You say, well, why is that good news? Well, keep, keep going here, okay? Jesus is sovereign over you. Jesus is second interceding for you. Huh. So get the picture. Just imagine almost like a painting. You got the disciples in the middle of a sea being blown back and forth by these waves. And this windstorm. Over here on the mountainside, you have Jesus on his knees in prayer. That doesn't say specifically what he is praying for, who he's praying for. You can't help but think that certainly the disciples are somewhere involved in his intercession at least. But it's at this point that I just want to to remind you, with that picture in your mind, just remember the words of Romans chapter 8. For those of you going through trial, through difficulty, hear, hear these words. If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. We are convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Know this, Christian. As you see, so let your perspective on your trial this morning change. Realize, know that as you walk through this trial, you have a Savior who is at the right hand of the Father and is at this moment interceding for you. And he is at every moment interceding for you. And he is sufficient to give you the strength you need, satisfaction you need, the wisdom you need, Everything you need. He is at the right hand of the Father on your behalf as you walk in the middle of trial. So he is he's, he's interceding for you. Leads to even greater truth. Number three, he is present with you. So then Jesus decides to go out to them. I love this. He doesn't have a boat, of course, to get to them. So he decides to take a stroll across the sea. And he goes walking to them on the water. When they see him, they are terrified, as they should be. You would be. They say, it's a ghost. And he looks at them and he says, take heart. Don't be afraid. It is I. And the language he uses there reminds us immediately, all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, when God revealed himself to his people in the middle of suffering to Moses. And he said, my name is the I am. That's the same language that's being used here. It's I. I'm the one who is with you. So see this. Jesus is not only, Jesus not only stills storms, which we're going to see in just a second. Wind's going to die down. We've seen that already in Matthew chapter 8. But Jesus not only stills storms, but he also 
uses storms as a pathway to greater revelation of himself in our lives. These disciples could not have experienced what they experienced at that moment when they see Jesus walking on water, looking at them and saying, take heart, don't be afraid, it is I. Talking about deeper revelation of Christ, deeper understanding of Christ that would not have happened if they were sitting on the side of the sea just talking. It only happened in the middle of being buffeted by wind and waves. And there is no question that it is, it is when the, the trials and the temptations that we walk through in our lives that the revelation of God becomes all the clearer and deeper. We, we say every single Sunday when we're preparing to leave, I will be with you always at the end of the age. That truth, His presence, is most precious in the midst of pressure of life. Knowing that you are not alone. So I want you to know, brother or sister, you are not alone. Jesus is sovereign over you, interceding for you, and he is with you. Leading to, fourth, Jesus' strength in you. So Peter decides he wants to be with Jesus. And the translation here is less, okay, if it's you, come to me. Instead, it's, since it's you, command me to come to you. Jesus, Peter knows Jesus has authority and power that if he commands, Peter can then join him on the water. So what a picture, what a picture, knowing that amidst trial, you don't have strength, but Jesus does. And as you trust in him, you will experience his strength in you. As you trust in him, you'll experience his strength in you. Now, the key to that whole phrase is as you trust in him, as you look to him. Because Peter, obviously in verse 30, begins to fall when he saw the what? He saw the wind when he stopped looking to Jesus and he looked to wind, looked to the circumstances around him. That's when he began to fall. Lord, save me. Jesus reaches down his hand and says, are you of little faith? Why did you doubt? Now, this is where I want to give you a bit of pastoral caution when it comes to faith. Because if we're not careful, we will read this story and hear this statement from Jesus to Peter about little faith and we'll miss the point. We'll begin to think, okay, then I just need to muster up more faith. That's, that's the point. People say, well, if I have enough faith, then I'll be healed of this disease. People say, if I, if I have enough faith, then this will all end. But that is not the point. That kind of thinking skews faith and makes it entirely dependent on what we can manufacture or muster up. But what I want you to see is that what matters most is not the measure of your faith. Even when Jesus talks about Peter having little faith here, I don't want you to think that this is something subjective that now you've got to go try to manufacture or create. What matters most is not the measure of your faith. What matters most is always the object of your faith. And that's the point that Jesus is making clear to Peter. Why did Jesus called Peter's faith little because Peter took his eyes off of Jesus, put, him on, put it on the wind. And that's when he began to sink, when the object of his faith changed, when he turned from Christ to the effects of the wind and just waves crashing around him. So the reality is your faith is only strong when the object of your faith is strong. And we know this, right? You can have all the faith in the world in something. You can be the, have just... Tons and tons and tons of faith. But if the thing you're putting your faith in 
is not worthy of that kind of trust, then it doesn't matter how much faith you have. I, I've used this illustration before. When I, when I was living in New Orleans, and uh, I, had, I had messed up my schedule, and I'd planned to preach in northern Mississippi on Friday night, then teach in New Orleans on Saturday morning, all day, and then be back and preach in northern Mississippi on Saturday night. And there's no way I could do it driving. And so I called up the guy in northern Mississippi. I said, man, I've blown it. I've doubled things up, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to be able to do it. He said, I've got, I've got a solution. He said, I can fly you on Saturday from northern Mississippi down to New Orleans and then fly you back up. And I was like, man, I have hit the big time. I mean... I'm now traveling to speaking engagements on a private jet. And so, so pretty excited, thinking, all right, I'm in a new level here. So I drive up to northern Mississippi that night, and it was, it, there's a whole story there about how uh, Jim Shaddix, my mentor, was also involved in this picture, and he needed to fly back as well. So, so what happened is, preach Friday night, and about 4 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, I, I, I go to the what I suppose is the airport, more like a field. And, and, and we get there at four in the morning and there's this sputtering plane right there. And there's this guy asleep in an old pickup truck. And I go and I knock on the window and find out that this is, this is the pilot. And he's just like, <laughs> so, so I'm like, Hey man, uh, you flying this thing? And he's like, Oh yeah, yeah. Just a second. And he's like wiping the sleep out of his eyes. And so so we get in this, this plane, tiny little plane. Uh, there's, there's two seats in the front and then kind of a seat in the back. That's where Shaddix is sitting. I'm sitting there in the front. And I, I'm just expecting this guy to go out to these propellers and just kind of hand <laughs> manually pull those things down and get us, get a, do we need to push? Like, how is this going to work? And we're sitting in the, in, the, in the plane. He gets it started. We're coming around to where we're about to prepare to take off. And all of a sudden, my door flies open. And, uh, and the pilot looks at me and he's like, is that your door? I said, yeah, it's my door. It's open. He said, oh, I forgot to, sh- to lock it. It's like, okay. Uh, so he gets out and he goes around to lock it. I turn around and I see Shaddix. His eyes are this big. And, and I'm thinking, like, bro, that was my door. Like, what if that happened 10,000 feet from now? Like, that's not good. Forgot to lock it. So, so we take off, and as we're taking off, that's when it hits me. I can have all the faith in the world that this plane is going to get me to New Orleans. But when the right wing falls off, it doesn't matter how much faith you've got at that point, this thing's going down. Right? Not measure of your faith that's most important at that point, object of your faith, most important. So see this in the middle of your trial. See this. See the object of your faith. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 12. See the author and perfecter of your faith. See that he is the king of creation, the Lord of the universe, who loves you and cares for you and provides for you. Keep your eyes focused on him. Don't try to muster up things and you don't look to yourself. Look to him. As long as your circumstances are on the, as long as your eyes are on the circumstances around you, the things that you can, okay, how can I fix this? Do this, do this, do this. As long as you're looking to that for your faith, then your faith will go up and down, up and down, up and down. You fix your eyes on Christ, then your faith will be constant because he is constant. He is constantly faithful. He is constantly good. He is always glorious. And he will work all these things together for good. So keep your eyes on him. 
Consider him, Hebrews 12, 4, who endured such opposition. And so you will not grow weary or brokenhearted. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Object of your faith. So he is. So, so where that translates in a strength in you, when you are weak, see him. He is strong. When you feel weak, the, the answer is not, okay, you need to try to be stronger. This is the point. When you feel weak, ask him to be strengthened you. Focus on him. Focus on the object of your faith. Jesus has strengthened you and he has peace around you. It's almost a passing note in verse 32. But as soon as Jesus gets into the boat, the wind immediately ceases. He's the only one who is able to bring peace in the middle of the storm. And there's coming a day, we know, illustration here, from all of Scripture in the New Testament, we know that there's coming a day when he will bring total and complete peace to his people. So brothers and sisters, persevere in faith in the midst of trial in a James 1 kind of way. How do you persevere when faith is hard? Just hear these words over you. He's sovereign over you. He's interceding for you. Jesus is present with you. Jesus is strength in you. And he is peace around you. Faith in the face of fear then leads us now to verse 33, which is the climax of the whole passage. In response, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Do you see it? Belief, worship. Deeper belief goes, higher worship goes. So this is the first time the disciples have said anything like this. We've seen the Father in Matthew chapter 3 acknowledge Jesus' sonship. We've seen demons in Matthew chapter 8 acknowledge Jesus as the Son of God. But the disciples had never done this right here. And they did. As their faith deepened, their worship rose to an entirely new level. And that's why I said it at the beginning. That's my prayer for you. And it leads to this picture of worship. I just want to invite you to this morning then, based on this text. First, in view of the one who calmed the storm and walked on the water, I invite you to fall at the feet of the one who saves the perishing. To everyone within the sound of my voice, do not bank your life and the circumstances and the stuff, the people and the things of this world. There's all are dead ends. Look to Christ. He alone is able to save you from your sins. Through his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, he is able to save you from your sins and to satisfy your soul. Fall at the feet of the one who saves the perishing. Believe in him. Look to him. Cry out to him. Save me. And he will save you. And then, to all who trust in him for his salvation, I invite you then to feast at the table with the one who satisfies the hungry. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As you may know, Radical exists to serve the church in accomplishing the mission of Christ by mobilizing churches to take the gospel to unreached peoples scattered across the globe. We carry out that mission in a variety of ways by providing thousands of free resources in multiple languages at Radical.net through catalytic events like Secret Church, 
through training and equipping opportunities like the all-new Radical Gap Year, and by connecting biblically faithful and practically effective efforts among the unreached with the gospel resources they need. And we simply cannot do this without you. So as the year ends, we invite you to help us take the good news of the gospel where it's never been. If you would, consider giving to Radical today. Your year-end giving in 2019 will help make Jesus known where he is not yet known in 2020. Thanks again for joining us. That's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at Radical.net.